He said, open your hand. You know, it's just me and Michael. And so I opened my hand like that and he put an ecstasy pill in. And he said, close my hand up and then he says, pats it to the stairs, during the stairs. Hello, welcome back to the podcast, um, Hoo-Ha Podcast with me and other people. Um, today's guest is Mark Opitz, legendary Australian producer, engineer, cut his teeth with the famous Vander and Young at Albert's studio, has recorded the likes of ACDC, The Angels, In Excess, um, the list goes on, Rose Tattoo, maybe even Kate Sobrano, I think there might be some Kate Sobrano shit in there, The Saint, he worked with The Saints, Guy's done it all, and he also did our first two albums, Dogs at Bay and Gutful, which are being reprinted on vinyl, Gutful for the first time since its release, which you can get in stores and on the line, online. Um, We cover quite a bit in our hour and 45 minutes, which is the longest podcast we've done so far. But uh, as you can tell, the guy likes to talk, which is great because this is a podcast and podcasts are for talking, not for looking at. so yeah, enjoy, fucking peace. Oh yeah, and also, sorry, sorry, um, pre-order Hoo-Ha, album comes out May 19th, new single, New Breeze, out 14th of April with a film clip, tickets, album tours, tours in the music, in the van, in the, in the earbuds, in the Spotify. Oh God, I'm a fucking loser. Ah, uh, 10 years ago. So uh, was it 10 years ago? Was it 2013? Around there, yeah. Uh, gee, so I was what? I was 24, 25, maybe at that stage. Uh, yeah. Old. Um, uh, well, at, at that you were stage, in your first marriage, I think. Yes. Um, what I was up to at that stage was continuing on what I was continuing on with. Uh, you know, and, and at, by, at that stage, I'd formed a relationship, a working relationship with uh, an engineer called Colin Wynn and 30 Mill Studios. Yeah. And which, uh, I, and, and it, which sort of brought, you know, pre that, I, 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 I moved back to Melbourne in 2006, I think it was. And then through Monique Brumby or somebody, I met, I met um, Colin. In a, and so I was really buzzed meeting him, and so we, we because he's such a good person, yeah, um, and, and 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 so honest, so humble, and so and so, you know, just his that's his heart was there to do to to work with, and so Colin and I formed a, a working relationship 
which and then Colin decided to build a studio around what I liked in a studio. Yeah. And so, and so we, we experimented with quite a few acts and we finally got the studio to a point where we thought it was great with the new Neve console and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which was a few years before I met you. So at that point, we were just just getting better and better and better at what we did. You know, I know I've got a track record that goes back a lot further, but, but for me personally, you know, I got to a point with making records in, um, where I really didn't want to make any more records. In, yeah. the, in the say 2000s, maybe the early 2000s and stuff like that, and Cole reinvigorated me, and we just formed this partnership. And so we were just, you know, looking for you know good projects that we could do. Now, can I ask, have you how have you worked with a with an engineer for most of your career? No, tandem. No, I haven't. Yeah. Um, because obviously taking it back to the very start, you basically cut your teeth in the game as as an engineer for Vander well, and Young, is that right? No, that's not that's not right, mate. I, I cut my teeth in, in TV. Actually. Oh yeah, but I mean yeah, anyway, yeah, that's Music, musically I went to EMI. Um, I joined EMI as a, a, and became a mastering engineer. And our mastering engineer, as you know, is you know what mastering is. Not uh, really, but I know it's well, mastering is when the finishing process for any record when it's yeah. done, it's sent it off to be mastered to get a to get the equilibrium and the record right. You know that all the tracks are balanced with each other, the sound buys, and and just as importantly that it doesn't sound you know duller or brighter or softer or louder than other stuff yeah. so, but more importantly that it actually fits on the lacquer well, a lot of people on the on the um, vinyl a lot of people don't understand about mastering mastering for vinyl is a lot different than mastering for normal mastering because yeah. in mastering for vinyl you've got to make it fit on the vinyl now the, the so the optimum length for each side for an album would be say 22 minutes yeah you get more than that, particularly with heavy dynamic stuff, that means grooves can start to cut into each other. So you have to cut a shallower groove, therefore you don't get the same fidelity. So the maximum you, you want each side of you of, is, is, say, 22 minutes tops, maybe 21. You know, less you can get it even better because you get much more definition because the groove is there. Yeah. It doesn't the next Hence one. the length of the modern, what became the modern LP. Exactly, because it's just like you know, it's it's you got to remember, you know, that through history. I know we might be drifting off the point a bit, but you know, all all the vinyl was was a medium, it was a storage device. Yeah. And for instance, as I like to say, if Edison could have put video on the first wax cylinder, he would have. Yeah. But it didn't fit. You know, and come back to that idea. That's actually something I want to ask you about later, but. So how did you go from the TV work to what was the step well, from the TV work? I, to I joined EMI. I just rocked up at EMI one day and said I want advice about work because I figured I wanted to be a, you know a record producer anyway. And so um, I rocked up at EMI and I, and I went up to the studios and I asked for to see the boss about advice. Yeah, not for a job but advice, and that's how it all sort of came about that I ended up working at EMI because when they found out that I was trained by a particular person, Noel Cantrell at the ABC, he said, oh, why didn't you mention his name straight away? Yes, we've got a job for you straight away. You know, can you start tomorrow? 
And yeah. so, I, and then, and in the process, this is really important, you know. Um, so I'd gone from mastering engineer, then I went into the A&R department, international A&R, where I was running Capital Records in America, from America, like choosing all the singles that, you know, whether it be, you know, Glenn Campbell or the band or Dr. Hook or whatever, I had to choose the tracks and, and come up and see how the marketing campaigns went, you know, et cetera, et cetera, to do the marketing, everything like that as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and come up with those sort of plans. And so that taught me a lot about the music business. Anyway, at one point, the head of EMI, Stephen Shrimpton, asked me if I was happy. And I said, well, not really. I want to be a producer. He said, no worries. I'm going to make you assistant house producer to the house producer of EMI. Fantastic. Mm. Did all that. Uh, and then there was a, a, a problem occurred, <clears throat> which, you know, I don't need to go into, but it, it necessitated, I didn't get sacked, so to speak, but there was um, a political issue that I yeah. had to... I left EMI over, and um, and when I left, a couple of guys called Vander and Young heard about me through John Paul Young's manager, and um, said to have me in for an interview, and said, "Can you, you know, talk to me about you know where my head was at and what I liked?" And they just for a couple of hours. Then they offered me the role of like basically their apprentice, and um, you know, because they needed, they had so much shit going on, they needed a hand. In the studio, and so yeah, yeah. so with Vander and Young, I became the apprentice. You know, I do all the engineering for them. I taught myself engineering, pretty much from you know uh, at uh, you know EMI and stuff like that. When I was in mastering, I'd take any chance, like the weekends when no one was working, to go into the recording studios. And finally, got into the recording studios, as I said, as as um, assistant house producer. So I was able to had a key to get in the studios whenever I wanted. And basically taught myself engineering by having lots of different bands in, you know, demoing and stuff like that. So so you've I, done it. I didn't realise you, you'd basically had done some A&R type work. Oh, yeah. Hit oh, band yeah. Very important. Very important. Oh, I'd yeah. Done right. I'd, done, I'd done an international A&R. And I was in charge of the local label, EMI's local artist label, not the signing of the artist, but the label managing of the artist, you know, of all local artists and all the capital record artists. So was, that that, a unique, was that a unique situation to have someone who became a producer who was also had an A&R mind or? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and it, it just happened, you know, like I couldn't have asked for a better training to go into being a producer because I knew what the record company wanted and I yeah. knew what I wanted to hear musically and I yeah. knew that I wanted the integrity of any one. I, I, I realised I had to balance integrity and commerciality. Yeah. And so it worked together. And that's the biggest thing. You learn not to become selfish about, oh, no, it's got to sound like this. It's got to, with Cold Chisel, with In Excess, with the Angels, I never sacrificed their integrity, but I made commercially successful albums with yeah. a lot like that. So I kept that fine balance.
And so for the listeners who may not have heard of Vander and Young, they should have, but... Oh, well, uh, these days I'm not surprised, but Vander and Young, everyone's heard of ACDC. You know, Malcolm Young and George uh, and uh, Angus Young's elder brother uh, was George Young from a legendary Australian band called the Easy Beats, in which George Young uh, was in in the 60s and early 70s, and he was accompanied by his best mate, Harry Vander. Now, George Young and Harry Vander were both fresh off the boat, so to speak. They were 10-pound tourists. They'd come on the immigration program where the, pa- the families, of, their parents had paid £10 or the equivalent thereof to uh, emigrate to Australia, which necessitated them coming out here, then going into a detention, not a Billawood detention centre is what it's called now, but in those days it was called Billawood Hostel. It was pretty much the same, just a you know, rows of barracks with families living, you know, toe-to-toe in all these barracks until, you know, they got a job and could get out of there. And Now we have the bush. I've never seen a bush before, not like that. So we finally got to this hostel. It was in the middle of the night. It was pitch black. You couldn't see a hand in front of you. The next day we woke up, we looked outside and I went, my God, where are I? Get their own place and... Uh, you know, the government fulfilled its promise of, of, of finding them work, and etc. So basically you're dealing with working-class people uh, who did that. And then but while they were in the uh, Villawood, uh, George Young, who was into music big time, you know, of course he was. He, everyone was. Everyone was affected by the Beatles. Mm. And, so, and, and so he went round and found other people in Villawood uh, hostels, or, uh, you know, what it was called to to um he wanted to be in a band and he found Stevie Wright he was English obviously himself being Scottish he, Harry Vandenberg who um, Harry Vanden who was Dutch Dick Diamond who was uh, Dutch also and um, he, uh, Snowy Fleet who was um, uh, English and and that was the band and they became a huge band in the sixties they were signed by the legendary Ted Albert. Ted Albert and Mike Budinsky are probably my two heroes in the, in the music business in Australia because they, they carved the path that everyone followed, both of those guys in different ways. But the, And, you know, if there was no Ted Albert, there'd be no ACDC, there'd be no Easy Beats, there'd be uh, no Billy Thorpe, Ted Mullery, all those ones back from that day, etc. And so um, that stage, the Albert family was a massive musical family, uh, industry family living in Sydney. Albert family basically had a company called um, Alberts, of course, but they specialised in sheet music, songbooks, uh, which songbook is a bit like a Walkman, but it's a book. <laughs> you have to sing yeah. You read the... the read Gather the around the piano sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And they'd sell sheet music and and then they, they, they sold for the everyday man they sold, you know, what musical instrument? Harmonicas, great. So they made the boomerang and harmonica, which is a cheap instrument that every guy could use. Mm. Uh, and so they were, you know, in the 20s, the turn of the century, right through the 20s and 30s, they made scads of money because they, it was affordable. Everything they, they gave was affordable to the working class guy, you know, or woman or whatever, be it sheet music, because remember, not many, everyone had a piano, but not every, no one had a Walkman, as I said, or, a, or an I, you know, I, the iPhone or anything like that, of course. So that's how they got their entertainment. Sure, there was a radio, but this allowed you, you know, I guess what 
they were was the paper forerunner of Spotify in a way. You know, yeah. it was Spotify on paper. And, it's hard uh, to imagine the that now, the fact that and that's what the publishing, still the sort of publishing laws relate to that, don't they? Totally. Um, yeah. All the publishing copyright laws still relate to that. And so basically the Albert family then, you know, built up this empire and they started buying radio stations. I think it was 2UW and, and um, uh, Sydney and uh don't know what it was in Melbourne, but Adelaide, they, they had built a network of radio stations in major cities and regional. So yep. that so they were making a fortune. And so by the time, you know, when Ted came of age, you know, he said, look, I, I just want to, he loved music and he wanted to, and he loved, you know, where records were going because he was a teenager in probably the 50s or or something like that. And so, so he was part of that movement of, you know, like we all were when we were teenagers, you know, music led the youth culture revolution as it did in his time. And um, so he, he followed that. So he basically, you know, one of the, he had brothers as well, you know, and all the brothers got different jobs. And, you know, one of the brothers was to run the real estate. Another brother was to run the radio stations. And Ted said, well, I want to run the music. And that's what he got. And when he did that, you know, he started to build a, a record label, and uh, and then he went about looking for bands, and that's where I come back to the Easy Beats and things like that. Signed the Easy Beats, signed Billy Thorpe, signed just. And this is a, a, an incredibly wealthy man who could slip into Villawood easily and converse with these people, and that takes a lot of talent to be able to come from that higher level socially and to be able to identify with the people on the lowest rung of the ladder. And Ted Albert what, had a had an ear for that's he, what I'm saying. He had yeah. an ear for that. And, and but, but the fact is, he just didn't have an ear for it. He acted. He, he went down into that, the, to, in the trenches and, and looked for it. Yep. Now where most he, other he actually go out in that. So he'd be out at the the sweaty venues watching the bands and. Well, they weren't sweaty venues. <laughs> there, there were venues, but he'd go and look for, and that's what made it even tougher because the easy beats. He went out to the hospital to look for people. He went out everywhere, anywhere he could think of to go, and not just gigs or whatever, because there wasn't that proliferation of gigs that oh, yeah. happened oh, yeah. in the 70s and 80s. And um, so we're talking, you know, 60s here. And um, But he knew he had a radio station, so he knew he had a promotional tool. So if you could find a band, yeah, and they did, and you'd find, well, let's take the Easy Beach with George Young um, and Harry Vander, Vander and Young, were in this band and, and they recorded at two UW studios in Sydney at the radio studios. Is how we used to in the, in those days. All the radio stations used to have auditoriums because yep. all all the radio stations we have plays on. They'd have all different you know shows on, similar to what TV is. And so he'd use that studio also for recording. Started having massive hits and stuff like that. The Easy Beats went great. Went to England. Became I guess you could say one hit wonders in a way, but everyone saw the potential in them. You know, they were rubbing shoulders. They were friends with the Bee Gees, obviously, because they'd come from Australia. They were friends that are managed by uh, different people at different times. They were close to Brian Epstein and the Beatles. They close to Rob Stigwood uh, and people like that. Uh, how do you mean how have things been? Well, since you, you're in Australia in 67, um, how's the group progressed since then? Progressed? Yeah. Well, being in England, we've taken in a lot of influences. <laughs> Alcohol. <laughs> uh, no, we've, we've sort of 
I guess we must have sort of naturally progressed. I don't, we don't want to say we've progressed unnaturally. How are the Australian groups that are going overseas, like the Lardy Dars and the Groove Fairing? Oh, well, unfortunately, they're in, in a bad position of um, going over there blind, you know, just without any sort of preparation. You know. That's the only, they're very good. There's nothing, the Lardy Dars are a very good group. But it's a very sort of big scene, you know. It's, Unfortunately, it's not how good you are, I don't think. And so, and then they, George, then when the band eventually broke up, as like apparently all bands do, apparently a couple of members leave the band. And when, you know, everyone, they've got to a point where they had different values and interests in life. And uh, But George Young and Harry Vander stayed in London and just kept doing studio stuff. But by this time, you know, they were making money out of, you know, writing songs for other people and they were making money. This is in the very late 60s, early 70s by now. And and Ted still had contact with them and Ted knew how they, they weren't, you know, they were on the bones of their ass in England. Yeah, they were working every day in the studio, but they weren't making headway. Um, and so Ted said, look, I'll fly you both back to Australia, set you up, and I want you to be partners with me in Albert Productions, a company I'm building called Albert Productions, where we... Not just the label, but we are a production company that produces music for our label and possibly others. Yeah. And that's how it started. So Vandering Young, that's the Vandering Young story. What were they working on when you first rocked up? Well, when I first rocked up, um, as I said, I'd just been, um, I just uh, departed EMI uh, under a cloud. And um, Wayne DeGrucci, John Paul Young's manager, who's a very good friend of mine as well, uh, Wayne DeGrucci, the manager, had said to George and Harry, you know, and I'd met George and Harry by this stage because I'd done mastering for them. And they said, oh, Wayne DeGrucci said to um, the boys that, hey, Mark's left EMI. If, if you need someone, I think he'd be a great choice. Unbeknownst to me, he said all this. Then I got a phone call from um, George Young. And he said, yeah, Mark, we'd like you to come in and have a chat. Uh, just about possibility of working, and uh, and so of course you know I was jumped at it because for someone like me at that age I knew exactly who Van and Young were. I knew they were two of the hottest producers not only in Australia but the world, and so you know I just couldn't believe it. And so I, I, yeah, of course, and so I I turned up at, at Albert's at one three nine King Street in the city of Sydney, onto the fifth floor. And I had a, a couple of hours meeting with, with Harry Vander and George Young. George Young very much led the, um, uh, the meeting. And um, as I said, you know, they talked to me about everything, you know, what music I liked, what bands that I went to see. They even asked me if you had two bands to produce that weren't being produced, who would they be? And I named them. And, and they said, that's Who were they? Can you remember? Yeah, one was a band from South Australia, funny enough, called Tomlin. T-O-M-L-I-N. You obviously never got to produce them because never heard of them. Right. They were great. <laughs> they were great. Yeah. Tom. Yeah, and um, the South Australian. Google it, you'll find it. Yeah. Um, and the other one was a, a New Zealand band um, with a few of the guys from Lardy Dars and someone else. But they were a good band. I can't remember the name. And I'd actually worked with them in the studio at EMI and done a few demos with them, and I really liked them. I think Leo De Castro was a singer, and um, who, who's one of the great New Zealand singers that no one's ever heard of. But the um, 
anyway, so that, that, at the end of the conversation, George said, look, yeah, we'd like you to come and work for with us. You know, we need help and, you know, you can be our assistant slash apprentice or whatever, but don't answer now. Think about it for two days and give us a call and see if you're, if you're interested. Now, can you imagine that? You've got, you know, like you've got, it's like having Brian Eno and Daniel Manuasa, you know, you, you, we want you to train you and you to be the best you can be, but don't answer it now, answer in two days or, you know, similar ill producers. And um, it's like, yeah, I, I sat by that phone for 48 hours and they're going, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, right on the mark. And so then I turned up on the first day and you, as you asked me what, what was happening at, um, at Albert's when I first joined, you know, already they, you know, they were, you know, cranking out the John Paul Young hits and a guy called William Shakespeare and uh, first two ACDC albums and things like that. And so, so I've turned up and um, first day they've said, okay, we did a band last week. We want you to have a go at mixing. This is on my very first day, you know, nine or 10 o'clock in the morning, whatever it was. And so we went down to the studio, they put the tape on and they said, we'll bat in a couple of hours to see how you go. And, you know, it showed me how certain things work. But I, obviously I had enough knowledge to work in the console at that stage and whatever. And there wasn't a ton of outboard gear in those days as well. What console uh, was it? It was a Neve. Oh, okay. It was a Neve, a classic Neve uh, yeah. 1084, I think you call it, but, you know, pretty console. Um, and as a matter of fact, I had one built pretty much in the same spec that you record, I recorded on the album, the two albums that I did with you guys. Yeah. And it was, that's pretty much that console, but it looked a lot bigger than the one that you did yeah. because we minimised stuff at that stage, but it was... Anyway, it doesn't matter. We, you know, so I was mixing away and it was, I'd heard of the band when I looked at it. It was some band called Rose Tattoo. I thought, oh, that's a great name. And the song was called Bad Boy for Love. That's, <laughs> that's my first day. You know, so, so to give you an indication, what was what was happening at Alberts? That's what was happening. What year is this? Tell the people how old you are, Mark. Uh, yeah, I, well, well, you got to remember, I was only thirteen when I went there. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was, God, seventy six, I guess. I don't know, um, seventy six, seventy seven, something like that. And um, and that was that, you know, and so. And before I know it, you know, that, you know, so I'm working on every project that Vander and Young is working on. It's interesting they... and perhaps key to the story of Australian music that they've got one day they're working on Rose Tattoo or the next day they're working on... Drop or Young. Yeah. So they, you know, they were at, as at home with gritty rock and roll as they were with a pop song and they, I guess they brought elements of both together. Well, as George would say, but can you dance to it? 
can you tap your foot to it? Is there something to remember? Yeah. In, in the song, you know, and that's that's what brought it all together. Where it's ACDC, John Paul Young, those elements exist straight across. You know, and and the interesting thing is that yeah, so we did the tax stuff and all that, and and, um, and then uh, it was a case of it was just a golden period. You know, it got to a point where it's basically Harry Vander, George Young, and Mark Opitz locked in Studio One that no one else was allowed to use at Opitz. Any commercial artist or commercial entity they wanted to hire up Studio could use Studio Two or the later Studio 3, but they were not allowed to use Studio 1. And so the three of us would be locked into this room and I'd end up, you know, in that stage, that the, the bare end of Let There Be Rock, uh, ACDC, uh, ACDC Power Age album, which I'm absolutely blessed to have engineered. And as you well know, I used to play that track sometimes when we were, you know, gone shooting, you know, stuff like that a lot, you know, and uh, when we were recording with you. But the... Um, Did ACDC hold a... When they were doing their pop stuff versus... Was the rock and roll more of a passion project than the, the pop no, works? No, no, no. Everything well, they, was the same. I, 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 I missed out on pop stuff that they did. I didn't necessarily... I didn't really like oh, much okay. the first two albums because it, it, to me it's a bit too poppy. And, and, that, and that's the Vander and Young influence. And you've got to remember there's these two little brothers, so they're going to do pretty much... What George says, although Malcolm is a really tough guy, I mean, rest in peace, but he's just a really good guitar player who always had his own mind and knew what he wanted to do. But in the beginning, that's how it worked. Um, yeah. So by the time I came along with ACDC, it was Let There Be Rock, um, which was starting to be the big change, particularly the song Let There Be Rock. was That was like the Sergeant Pepper moment for them, I guess, where the music went bang. Yes. We're into it. Fuck it. We're rocking. You know, let's go. Uh, you know, A, A sus for or D, D all that sort of stuff started coming in. So I was lucky enough to be there. And like, as you say, you know, one minute you're working on one thing, one minute you're working on the other. And to give you an idea, we did um, Power Age and, you know, like the idea to do Power Age or how we're going to do Power Age, well, when do you play best? They play best at night. So we'd start work at 8 o'clock at night. And would work work three to six or eight in the morning, rather yeah. than work during the day, yeah. just to get that thing going. And then you know, like do that project, and then be another project. You know, you know, Harry and I'd be sitting in the studio in the morning, you know, having a cigarette, a cup of tea, or something like that. And George would come down and say, "Oh, we've got to do a uh, okay today. We're going to do two songs for John Paul Young because we've had a hit." in South Africa with a song called Yesterday's Heroes. So we've got to follow that up with a rock track. And we've got had a hit in Germany unexpectedly. They played, the hit was the B-side, a song called Standing in the Rain, of John's single over there. And it wasn't the A-side, when I say A-side, the track that they wanted, which I can't remember what it was, you know, whether it was uh, Pasadena or one of those sort of poppy tracks. And... Um, so, but Standing in the Rain uh, was a hit in Germany, as I said, and, and um, Yesterday's Hero in, in South Africa. So that was, uh, we had to follow those up. And these guys are very, you know, clear-minded. So if we're going to follow something up, it's got to be in the flavour of the song that's already been a hit. Otherwise, it's going to get confusing to people. So for South Africa, it would be a rock song. 
But for Germany, because standing in the rain is like a bed, I saw you standing in the rain. So we said, oh, what song are we going to start with? And he said, well, let's start with standing in the rain. Mark, get the loop out for standing in the rain and we'll write a song based on that loop that, so it suits the one that went before. And so I'd get the loop out, the tape loop in those days, as opposed to a computer hard drive loop. It was a bit of quarter-inch tape that you'd edit into a big circle and you would put it on the tape machine, you'd weigh down one end with a reel, and then you, you, after you'd edit the circle of tape together, press play and the circle would just keep playing and playing. And so I'd have that playing, and so and, and I'd be at the console, George is sitting next to me, and he's got a little chord organ, must be about, you can't see my hands, about so big, you know, and it's got maybe two octaves, and it's got a row of buttons to play different chords, like a farfisa sort of arrangement, but small. And George would just sit there and would playing, and then he'd go down, and he had this little uh, chromatic scale thing that he really liked. He kept playing that, and, and to a point where he said to Harry, Harry, um, get the old notebook out, What? give me some titles of songs, you know, like... Uh, because they used to write down any phrase they thought was clever or any line they thought was clever to save for future songs. And, uh, you know, and Harry said, read out some names. And Harry said, you know, my love is blue. No, 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 no. Love is in the air. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's go with that. And and meanwhile, George is going, da, da, da. And that's how the song Love is in the Air started. And we finished that song in one day from nothing, nothing written at all. At, at nine or ten o'clock in the morning till at eight o'clock by that eight or nine o'clock that night we've got all the music done and George is on the phone to John Paul Young says John can you come in get in here by about nine and I, I, we've got a song we want you to try out and sing and while they're talking on the phone George has got the phone up he and Harry are still writing the lyrics John comes in we show him the lyrics John makes a couple of little changes for his voice so things can change and, you know, move in and out. And then uh, we had the vocal, Love's in the Air, done. Boom. Uh, in, in one day we did that song from, from zero. You know, it took us three weeks to mix, of course, because we didn't have auto, automation mixes and we had to get Ted Albert, who I mentioned before. Uh, it, George said to me, take all the mixes up to Ted, which was a whole box of cassettes, you know, little cassette tape cassettes that we used to have back in the olden days. And um, I took them up to Ted and there was, you know, maybe 40, 50 cassettes of this one song. And so we expected to hear from Ted in a few days' time. And George and I and Harry are having a cup of tea downstairs after. I said, oh, yeah, I've took them up to Ted. You know, that's great. He's going to listen. He's going to come down and have a listen. And as we were talking, Ted walks in the door holding cassette. So, yeah, this is one. Love is in the air Everywhere I look around Love is in the air Every sight and every sound And I don't know if I'm being foolish Don't know if I'm being wise But it's something that I must believe in And it's there when I look in your eyes 
You haven't listened to them all. Well, I, I know I didn't say that. I'm thinking he hasn't. How could he possibly listen to them all? And George says, "Yeah, you sure?" He says, "Yeah, that's the one." And you know, and we put the cassette in and listened to it. We had no idea which it was. <laughs> yeah, you know. And we thought, "Yeah, that sounds fine," because because someone else was playing to us. We were listening with different ears. So and so when we were doing all the mixes, the fifty different mixes of the thing. We'd be moving a, a kick drum a little bit, or in the next mix, maybe move the hi hat a little bit, or oh no, John's vocal's too loud in that one. And what the lesson we learned from that wasn't about the little change in the mixes, it was about the song. And and and, and Ted having a fresh pair of ears, he didn't know that we were pushing all the shit around. He said, he just listens, it sounds great to me. The first one he picked out, or maybe it wasn't, maybe it was the second one listened to, it doesn't matter. But um, says fine to me and that taught us a huge lesson as i said it's about the song mm. and the, you know and the performance no matter what you do in the mix yeah you can really screw it up but all those little minute changes you might make just to get that oh that's not just quite right that's not just quite right doesn't matter when it's on the radio and you've got the whole world or listening to it it's the song they're getting lost in the story they're getting lost in the field they're getting lost in the beat big lesson learned so that's a sort of so to 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 follow up on what you said from ACDC to John Paul Young, and you know, like we did Power Age, probably is to the ACDC aficionado, and I'm be right in saying this, and I'm be willing and willing to be shouted down, but that's to the true ACDC acolyte, and I'm talking about when I say acolytes, I'm talking about Keith Richards, Gene Simmons, and Kiss, you know, Richards and Rolling Stones, obviously. And a bunch, a whole bunch of people say that's their best album. I think it's their best album, and yet it's this raw rock album against. Then you listen to John Paul Young, which is like totally different, strictly boring, you know, totally different things. George came to me one day and said, "Look, I've got we've, one of our bands they'd produced before I'd come along. They'd done an album for a band called The Angels, and it really did nothing. They had a slow version of a song called Am I Ever Going to See Your Face Again,' which was." not the one you hear these days. It was a slower tempo than that. And they said, we're going to drop this band or you can, time for you to get out there and start producing or you can produce this, you can have a go at producing it. And so I was scared shitless. So I said, yeah, I'll go. yeah, I'm into it. I mean, you know, and that's, so that led me into producing a band called The Angels. And then, the, which, you know, I'd worked out the direction that we all had to, we need to go more rock, not because the album that George and Harry done with them was like a collection of country rock and rock and had like several different genres on it. And it, so the album didn't really work out. Shitty, a really bad cover, uh, you know, because George and Harry weren't really concerned about record covers as much. So just 
the tracks and and sausage machining them out there. But whereas I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I go to gigs. George and Harry weren't going to gigs anymore. At so they've done that initial album. They did the first album. Yeah, not, not the album. Them. No one, it didn't sell, still hasn't sold. Yeah. And then I came along and did an album that ended up being called Face to Face. Yeah. And that, and the, that, that was a big difference because, you know, like, you know, they couldn't believe it because, you know, that their album that Vandren, George and Harry Vandren Young had done with the Angles had sold about two and a half thousand copies. Yeah. The album I did with them, the next album went five times platinum in a year. And uh, so, have you been um, listening to stuff like the Ramones and the sort of first uh, wave of punk? Uh, yeah, uh, there's certainly there certainly that seems to be the the difference. It, it's in keeping with that stuff, whereas the Vander and Young version is more still stuck back in the early seventies without the urgency of the or the uh, sophisticated. No, no, for me, it, I wasn't didn't take inspiration from the Ramones at all. Am I? Now, my inspiration came from a, a different thing because at that stage, you know, we all knew ACDC was a staple of albums, basically. You know, it was, well, it wasn't the staple, John Paul Young and a few others, but we, you know, we, we liked bands like ACDC because we were kids who liked to go out and get shit faced and, you know, like to feel the, the pounding of the kick drum in the chest and the, the aggression of the rock and roll and all that youthful, uh, what do you call them, endorphins. Um, uh, you know, whatever the testosterone was built up at that point, yeah. and uh, and so I, I decided that you know I went you know I, the day they said it to me I went back to my mentor's place Wayne DeGrichi who I mentioned before we, we used to go over there Friday nights a few of us and hang out at Wayne's place smoke dope listen to music and generally bullshit about lots of stuff and um, so we um, I must say nothing's changed um, uh, it, it, and then. Um, Wayne gave me a record to listen to. Oh, this record I just got, you know, it's a guy called Graham Parker and the Rumour is the name of the band. And it was their first album. And I, and I thought, oh, great, because we were all used to the punk scene at that time and when it was a little bit pre-New Wave and stuff like that. And then we, um, I listened to this record, quite stoned, and I started to have metaphysical thoughts in the sense that, um, wow, you know, look at that English music punk's really changed it's becoming much more sophisticated yeah and then i thought that's it sophisticated punk music. obey the rules do as you are instructed and don't ask questions That's what we need, and because I think all music goes from goes from the street to commercial, it always has. It's gone from like you know, black music, for example, turns into Bill Haley and the Comets. You know, uh, do you know what I mean? You know, like it, it, music starts underground, and then it turns into popular music by virtue that it becomes popular. The youth pick up on it because it's different, and uh, etc. And that's ha- happened all through history. You know, you go from opera to bloody, you know, whatever. No, to Frank Sinatra, that changed. You know, Frank Sinatra, when he came out, a huge difference on what had been on the floor. And that, so 
you could see that, that, that punk music was becoming sophisticated. So I thought sophisticated punk music is what is, was the phrase I had in my head. And as, you, as I've told you before, when I'm producing records, I usually have a couple of phrases in my head that have to pass test. You know, when I'm yep. thinking of a decision, it has to pass, is it sophisticated punk music? So then you obviously this led on to the, the golden era where you basically produced Triple M's playlist for the next 40 years. So they tell me. <laughs> Um, That's what Triple M told me the same thing. One thing I... <laughs> Mick Malloy said, came up to me one day when he worked for Triple M and um, it was, gee, probably around the time I was working for you guys and um, and I went to the Triple M Christmas party and Mick it was introduced to me. He said, Mark and Mark, I hope that's... If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> and no How one else... Find coming I, to, like, the bands of that era, by the time they got to you, probably had played... I don't know, well, thousands of gigs. Exactly. Whereas when we came to you, even played, though we might have yeah. had similar, yeah, we might have played 50 oh. gigs, if that. Do you think that is a limiting factor in, in doing the type of music that, that, that bands like us aspire to? Yes and no. Yeah, mm-hmm. The big problem, of course, is that when, when you play, as you said, thousands of gigs, you know, the left hand knows exactly what the right hand is doing before it does it. You know, yeah. because the, the empathy in, in uh, of the band is a, like a one-on-one equals three situation. And so you, you get, you have a certain momentum and everything when you're playing gigs every night. Like that's what happened in the 70s and 80s. But then, you know, unfortunately, much later that was killed by poker machines because you didn't have to pay a poker machine. The poker machine paid you. And also the fire regulations and laws and stuff like that. So all the big beer barns from that era, you know, where gigs, uh, bands could play live, everyone was playing, you know, didn't, you could have any band and you'd still have five gigs a week, didn't know how good it was. And so that was a great element. And, yes, it's made a big difference, you know, but not uh, what's made a difference. It's made a difference in two areas. One is that, you know, a band is like, There'll never be another in excess, you know. Well, maybe Voyager from Western Australia are going to go close. They're a good, they're right there. Who? Uh, you've never heard of them, have you? Nah. Is this I, the one that um, the in excess manager was managing? No. Voyager was, I was in Perth earlier this year. I've heard uh, of this guy. And I'm, I met uh, and so for the Western Australian Music Awards, and I was part of the uh, Western Australian Music week where I had to give keynotes and um and so I you know I, I saw a lot of bands and at the West Australian Music Rock Awards had a lot of bands oh yeah they're okay they're good and this band called Voyager came on I went what the hell this is amazing you know and then I went to see You're talking them. about this band yeah there's that, that key guitar there and stuff like that yeah, yeah that's that's them are they on Eurovision they are doing Eurovision and that came out about three weeks ago that they they were going to be Eurovision. Everyone going, who the hell was Voyager? And I'm thinking... Progressive yeah. metal. I mean, it's time for a... I'm telling you, <laughs> if, if, you get, if you get a chance to see these guys, go. Okay. I mean, I, I, and then I went to... And then on, at, at, on the... Daniel Estrin, front man. Yeah. Also a lawyer. That's right. I think That's I'd right. rather watch him um, play than defend me on a, in a criminal case. But, He's brilliant. He's yeah. absolutely brilliant. Uh, it, you know, like he plays the keyboard, or the key keytar, or whatever it's called. He hardly plays it at all. But you know, they these guys are so professional. They put on a show, no, no gaps between songs. Everything's bang, 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 bang. 
they if they've got a plan B if something goes wrong they go to it. I saw it happen on on the Saturday night when I saw them play day up. They had a problem. Some it was seamless. You could not tell they had a problem. And to the point, you know, like the lead guitarist is doing the solo. That guy just picks up the the guitar, walks over to the lead guitarist who's blistering, and just blisters out this guitar solo on a keyboard. Was just like where did that come from? You know, it's like it's insane, and, and just their movements and their power. It's just, it's the energy. It's sort of the stuff that I used to look for in a band. They had it in spades, and I was blown away. And I came back to the East Coast, you know, uh, uh, winter after I saw them. Oh no, last year I saw them, late last year. No one had ever heard. I'm going. You've got to be kidding. These guys are just like why? They're probably the best live band in Australia, and, and no one's ever heard. Yeah. You can say that, but you tell you go and see him, Alex. I'll, I will. I'll, I'll take. I wouldn't pass up your um, recommendation. And it's, um, it, but 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 yeah. Getting back to your question, of course, the the twofold aspect of, of it was that everyone learned to play their chops, and then when they you know so that was and the crowds got excited you know back in the seventies and eighties in those days, and then. Um, when all the fire laws changed and the poker machines came in, it not only robbed the bands, it also robbed the youth culture mm. of that kind of aggressive, energetic, uh, testosterone-based music. And so that really, so to answer your question, yeah, it made, it's made a big difference. What about with ACDC? Did, could you, when you were doing Power Age, in those early yeah. albums, they obviously, they hadn't quite broken overseas. Well, no, yeah. could, you, could you have foreseen the huge heights that they would scale, like yes. the second big... No, oh, no one could see the like the biggest band in the world. No, you couldn't see that, but you knew they were good. As soon as I heard Riff Raff, that was it. Yeah, but there's a difference between being a big rock band and being like Thriller, Michael Jackson, big like they became, isn't it? That's, oh, totally. But, yeah. but I, I got it, you know, like uh, when I was working with them, uh, not so much, you know. And I mean, I, in 1980, um, I, I was I happened to be in in uh, Paris, which is you know without city name dropping. A fitting, fitting city for someone like you, really. Rome's pretty good, good for me. Um, but the um, anyway, the, the reason I mentioned Paris is that um, I was walking down Boulevard Saint Germain, and I, there was a little lane, and I could see some big rock posters, and I went and had a look at them, and these were big posters and it was ACDC live at the Olympic you know in French really you know um uh, I say uh, they say exactly if yeah if it was big if the French liked it you know that well no well no what it, it wasn't so much that the French liked it it was that I realized how big a band they were yeah you know because of these giant posters everywhere that you, that I began to see about them that I realised, God, these guys, I'd get goosebumps, you know, I think, shit, these guys are really big, you know. And um, so, yeah, it, it's, it, it, I mean, everyone wants to be the biggest, the new Beatles or the new Rolling Stones or the new U2 or whatever, or the new Frank Sinatra, but, you know, very little do it. And, um, but, you know, but when you're working on it, the whole aim of this stuff, you don't necessarily think it's going to be the biggest band in the world. What you're trying to make is, is a fuck yeah record. Fuck yeah. yeah, you know, that's what you're trying to do. You know, yeah, it'd be great to get a guy like album out of this. So this might go platinum, you know, whatever. That's what, you know, I used to chase was 
the platinum records and stuff like that. But uh, to have a hundred times platinum album never occurred to me. You know, uh, you know. I didn't you know, even know that was possible. Yeah, <laughs> and it would never occur to anyone else either. But uh, you know, uh, but then again, uh, you know, the tactic that ACDC used, no wonder. You know, they 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 got in sync with the international music straight away because George Young and Harry Band had been in the Easy Beats. They'd seen the mistakes the Easy Beats made. ACDC weren't going to repeat those mistakes. They were going to learn from them. Was there any no. bad blood when they went um, went away from George and Harry doing producing? No, that happened after the last album that George and Harry did at that particular time and the last album that ACDC ever did in Australia was the one that we did, Power Age. Yeah. And when Atlantic heard it, Atlantic didn't like the album, even though it had like songs like Sin City and... Um, What's that other classic on there? Uh, huge. They just, you know, rock and roll damnation, stuff like that. Um, and they did. They said, we don't hear a single. Uh, admittedly, we went, when they said that, we went back in the studio and did rock and roll damnation as a single. That's as after we finished Power Eight and sort of added it to the record. But that was the last record they did. And that's the reason is because Atlantic said, I think the band needs a new producer. Ironically, years before, Easy Beats were in London doing an album at Abbey Road with Ted Elbert producing, who produced everything to that point. And the record company said that the Easy Beats, the band needs a new producer. So George knew this, that it had happened to him. And so, but Malcolm Young by that stage, particularly during Power Age, he, he really was becoming a force, the creative force in the band, you know. Power, Not, the power shift. As a, the power shift between George, yeah. the older brother, he had to pass the baton on now because Malcolm and give Malcolm his head. And so it, it came to the point, you know, that where when they went to America to do the Power Age tour and stuff like that, that this was floated and, you know, George and Harry weren't that happy about it. They came back to Australia um, and the band did and, you know, it was all talked about. And so, okay, we're going with George said, we'll try a few different producers. They got Eddie Kramer to come out to um, uh, try him out as a producer. I engineered those sessions. The band hated Eddie Kramer, didn't think he, he knew what he was doing or had any idea. But again, Eddie was from a past era, really. Uh, and then they found uh, Mutt Lang when they were in England and, and, and the rest, as they say, is history. You know, they did, rock, they did uh, Highway to Hell and um, Black and Black. Go-betweens, the saints, uh, the victims, um, scientists, and that sort of undercurrent of bands doing a similar thing, well, but a DIY I, version. I, I, well, the saints were a little bit before that, you know, because um, you know, as, as you know, saints are Brisbane band of, again, in, English immigrants, uh, etc., that um, set the punk music world on fire. You know, and you know, one of the bands that you know that's credited with the invention of punk music. 
because when the Saints started doing their stuff, they'd never heard punk music. It just wasn't, didn't exist. You know, they were just doing what they do. And um, so I was very aware because I were also, I was the Saints label manager at EMI. So of course I was aware. You know, and when they went to do their oh, yeah. first album, you know, it's, um, we heard the single, I'm Stranded, and then one of the house producers went up to Brisbane to record the rest of the album. So, and that first album. So I was very aware of them. But, you know, and Chris Bailey and I became great mates uh, for years, uh, up you know, to the died, I guess. And, you know, Chris Bailey from the Saints is one of the few people I'd look for if I was at to go to a record function. If Chris Bailey was there, there was someone I could talk to, as opposed to listen to all the bullshit from guys in satin jackets talking about how big their cocks were and, and their Ferraris they wanted, whatever. You know? <laughs> um, uh, uh, but whereas Chris, you know, was one of the most educated people I've ever met in my life. It's like talk to Lord Byron. You know? And um, it's so, so I was very aware of that. You know, of the movement. I mean, I was into music. Of course, I was a bit. But again, you know, the, the the saints had no bearing on on, on that at all. You know, on my, You're credited as a as a, a remix on Prodigal Son. Yeah. What did you do on that? The album you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, I did the whole mix the whole album. You mix at the time. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. Remix. It was a mix. Yeah. Um. Can I humour you, or can you humour us by us picking um, a few things out of your catalogue and telling us your recollections of recording them? Of course you can. Um, well, starting with one of the absolute classic Don Walker tracks, Flame Trees. What do you remember about that coming together? Flame Trees was a very interesting song. Uh, you know, that's something that uh, that was on... Um, the album called 20th Century. And um, and at that stage, Don had gotten away from writing songs that were immediately accessible. The album before that was an album called Surface Animals, where Don had gone away from doing that. And I remember being at a gig and thinking, what am I going to do? You know, I was head of A&R at Warner Brothers at that stage, and I was producing Cold Chisel. I just had a five times platinum, an album called East with Cold Chisel. And I did, uh, and I was about to go and do Circus Animals, but Don didn't really want to go down any commercial pathways. And so I went to a gig at the Parramatta a, a, a couple of weeks before rehearsal started, and thinking, what am I going to do? And then um, Jimmy got up on stage and said, there's a song by Steve, it's called Blue Parrot or something like that. And it's a song that we, come to, it's a song that we, and it went for seven minutes. But it was a song that we know as Forever Now, which became a huge hit. And then when I went backstage, I said, oh, thanks, Steve, you've saved my ass. You've come up with a great single for this record. Oh, are you looking at this a single? Is it, you know, have a listen to this other song I wrote. And it's, it's called When the War Is Over. Have a listen. What do you think of that? It's just a demo. And I listened to When the War Is Over and I nearly fell over. You know, and so the reason I say that is it's Steve's songwriting craft progressed from the first album I did with him, which he had a song called Best Kept Lies, which was pretty straightforward, but good. And then he'd come up with these two monsters on the next album. And then on the 20th century album, he came up with pretty much flame trees. And um, he wrote the music, he wrote the melody, and Don Walker helped him with the words. And 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 Don drew on his childhood, his memories of grafting. Flame trees is a song about grafting. And flame trees, they don't have flame trees in Grafton, they have jacaranda trees. 
but he not, couldn't. Not, and, not easy in the rhyme scheme, jacaranda. And you know, and the jacaranda trees <laughs> didn't really work, <laughs> so he changed the tree species to flame trees because it had a good connotation with flame. We all know those red trees when we see them. So to work on that was absolutely uh, a, a joy because I knew where Steve was coming from. All the melodies are very Steve and all that. And while we were working on the song, you know, and, and they'd actually started the song. They'd started that album with a different producer, a guy called uh, Tony Cohen, the late, great Tony mm-hmm. Cohen. But Tony got sick just after they recorded the rhythm tracks. And so I went in and took all of Tony Cohen's rhythm tracks and... Binned them. No, kept them, kept all these rhythm tracks. It's Tony Cohen, and um, but they were all good. But what I did was all the main overdubs on it. You know, we did this, we did that, guitars, did all the vocals, and and Jimmy had already done a guide vocal on the song called Flame Trees, and um, in the, there was a section in the middle of it. It breaks down, and uh, and Jimmy sort of talks his way through and says, uh, "Who needs that sentimental bullshit anyway? It takes more than the memory to make me cry." Yeah. What a great line, you know, it takes more than memory to make you cry. And Jimmy was, he wasn't singing it, he, he was talking it, and he said, I'm not happy with that. And I said, yeah, right, I can understand that. So he said, what do you think I should do? And I said, it's not a matter of what I think you should do. I think you should think, what would Aretha Franklin do? Bang, straight in the studio, in front of the mic. At a table with my friends. Yeah, and bang, and that's, a, and that's what you get straight away. And so, and so, so we brought that solely feel into it, you know. And yep. he just killed. And then at the end of the song, you know, the other things I brought into it, like the stacked sing-along backing vocals at the end to get everyone, oh, all that sort of stuff. Was like just grab people from outside on the street in the studio complex, whatever, and just go in there and just sing this line monotone. Whatever comes out of your mouth is going to be fun. What a great weight to it, the song. And yeah. as it, you know, it, it, that momentum is it builds. But well, that's what, that's, that's what I was trying to do is yeah. get the build up, but start the build with a bit of soul, you know, with who needs that same bullshit anyway, then, then, then and bring it up. Other than that, it was pretty much a country and western song before that. An interesting thing that I'd like to ask, I guess, because Ben and I sort of have a similar relationship with Don Walker when he was, you know, writing a lot of lyrics for these songs but never seen them how much would he sort of just would he sort of just hand the page over and and play the song and then jimmy or ian moss would do it or would he how, yeah, how much would, coaching would he give them in terms of how he wanted it to sound um quite a lot you know particularly you got to remember you know one long day all those sorts of songs you know uh those when in the middle of all these um don would be writing the music and the lyrics from yeah. from most of the for the album the two albums before i came along which was cold chisel and then breakfast at sweethearts pretty much don wrote everything you know maybe a bit of pieces on uh, on that but um what happened when we did an album called east is i encouraged everyone to write to take the weight off don and also to get more of a band uh, flow going in the whole place and we recorded at paradise studios this is going back and album these were two albums and um i used to lock them in their own little booths and say okay go write songs and you know if you need help i'll so you know I'll, uh, phil smalls 
for, exa for example, was writing a song and he could only get the chorus. My baby, talking about my baby. I don't know, you know that song, right? So yeah. he finished, so I'd send Ian in. Ian, go and work with Phil on the song. In, you know, I'd create a workspace for them in another room in the studio, bang, and then they'd do that. Or, you know, Jimmy would, I remember when his girlfriend, went, his, current, his wife, went to, who's now his wife, Jane, went to Japan to work at the Australian Embassy. The rising sun just stole my girl Rising sun just stole my girl Probably while we were in the studio one night, you know, between probably six and eight, and we had it fully recorded by ten. AM. No, six and eight AM. We're in. This, this is we're in, we'd been in the studio whatever for the day, and and, and Jimmy got and said, oh, "I want to." He wrote a song, and we came and brought it downstairs. What do you think of this? What is it? The rising sun just stole my girl away. And everyone, oh yeah, it's great. you know how's it go? Uh, well, it's just basic, you know, as it is. Probably yeah. lose. And they just went in and played it, and bang, recorded, and that was that. Done. You know, so boom, hit. Um, Interesting, the melodic core, um, or one of the melodic cores of Cold Chisel was the drummer, as, as it happened in the end. Uh, the melodic core was... Uh, but I mean, in terms, he wrote those, the, those the, songs the, the, when the, the war total, was over. The total melodic core of, of those songs was Steve, where the melodic core of you know, other songs would be Don. You know, with the melodic core of when, when we got everyone writing, it revert between different people. Like, you know, Ma, Baby, that's Melody, that's Ian and Phil, or Phil. What, was the, what was the relationship like between them to offset, you know, were, were they happy to just be like, okay, that's a good lyric, he's yep. good at this, they can do that? Well, absolutely. you got to remember Don Walker formed this band called Orange in Adelaide and, um, uh, and you know, was getting different people to sing and play. And I think Ian and, and, and Don were first got together first and then, you know, Steve got involved. Um, you know, it's funny because they're all, you know, except for Don and, and, and Phil, the, the rest are immigrants. Oh, no, how can I say it? Mossy's not. But the, the, the um, Jimmy Scotland, uh, Steve Liverpool, but um, so that's going back again, like ACDC and Easy Beats, etc. But yeah, the melodic core was Cold Chisel because Don had started off all the writing on those first two albums, and so you know, one on one plus uh, one on one equals three. Oh, hey, it's Galen. Um, I'm just the fact checker for the show. Just letting you know that I've heard Mark say a few times now that one on one equals three, and. I, I actually, I went to Office Works and I bought a calculator and I've worked out that one and one actually equals two. So um, just making sure everyone's aware that, that that's the case. All right, cheers, back to the show. You know, once you put everyone together, you know, like when Don decided in Adelaide that he needed to go back to New England University to complete his studies, um, and everyone was, they were all playing in a band by that stage and doing really well at Larkspear and places like that around um, Adelaide in the various gigs. So everyone's going, oh, what do we do? Um, we're coming with you. <laughs> what? We're coming with you. What do you mean? Yeah, we're coming up to Grafton with you. We'll just get a house up there and live in there and you do your studies and then we'll just play at the house and go and do gigs around whenever you got a moment. So they were tight bonded, you know. They'd got to that point, you know, where they were living and they all went and lived in this house outside Grafton and 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 what what could they do except play every day? 
you know, and then Don came back and finished his studies. The band came back and then boom, they went back to Adelaide, played more and, and came what back. Was, um, K-San not a hit at the time, do you think? K-San was not allowed to be hit. Oh, political reasons. No, uh, it, no, the legs were often open. Their minds were always closed. That was what kept the legs were always open. That's what kept it off radio. Radio refused to play Kesar because of that line. Because not the Vietnam sentiment. Nothing to do with Vietnam. It was all to do with the Two uh, SM, who was the main rock station in Sydney at that particular time. It's pre Triple M. FM, I should say, and AM radio was uh, the main station in Sydney, was, uh, which was the biggest station in Australia, was 2SM. It was owned by the Catholic Church. What about Sherbet? Like, you only like me because I'm good in bed or whatever. They, they all played that. That. And that. That broke on Triple J. Different story. That's Double J. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm good in bed. No way in the world, if it wasn't hit, that 2SM would have played that. That's yeah. just beyond the pale. Yeah, that's what kept the reason K San wasn't a, a hit because it was never, ever played on radio. Well, it ended up in playing on radio, but not until, you know, community standards had, had, had broadened a bit as far as that sort of thing is concerned. Mm. Okay. You mentioned my baby before. Is that urban myth or that, that industry myth that the American label decided to market that by sending out the promo copy in a nappy? A nappy and a what we call a, a dummy but they call a pacifier for the kids that's actually true that's very true <laughs> why do you think jimmy wrote you got nothing i want yeah he was talking about the american record company and what was that thing about the they rocked up at the their a and r guy missed their gig because he had to go to his poodle's birthday party or something that's right they had a um it, one at the showcase gig that they were doing in LA, the record company. Because the thing is, the reason they were signed to an American record company is because they were signed to Warner uh, Warner Brothers, where I was by that stage head of A and R. So if you got to a gold record, they used to give a contract out. The standard Warner Brothers contract at that stage in Australia was if an Australian act reached gold status, they were automatically going to be released in America. That was written into contracts and written in for a very good reason because it was good bait to sign any act. Oh, you sign with us, you go gold, you're going to get definite release in America uh, with the, the power of Warner Brothers behind you. So that's a great little thing to dangle, character dangle for people. And, but the problem with that, of course, is that, you know, if I'm head of A&R in America and the president of the company comes down and says, oh, by the way, you've got to sign this band and release them, it's not something I'm into, you know. I haven't discovered yeah. it. I haven't got a, a, an empathy for that. I just have to release it because I'm told to. And so, consequently, the American arm of Warner Brothers really couldn't give a shit about cultures. They were releasing that, you know, the president was releasing it because he had to, and and the, everyone else was working for it under sufferings. And so they, so immediately that puts a, a certain feel in their minds when they go and hear it. Number two. You know, when I finished Circus Animals, I remember driving home and saying to my wife at the time, culture's all like Vegemite. And, you know, you give Vegemite to an American, they go, what the hell is that? But you give Vegemite to a straight, love it. Because mm. they, they grew up with it. 
And so with a band like Cultures were going over there, that stage in 1980, you know, Australia was this, well, it's all kangaroos down there, isn't it, or whatever, you know, and, uh, and so they, they couldn't understand these songs, you know. Next song, Reckless. Great song. I was asked by... How the hell did you get the snare sound is my, I guess, my main question. That was easy. But for a bit of background first, I, um, again, like um, Australian Crawl, because I had so much success here, it sort of triggered a clause, I think, uh, in America. And because they, they had a big album in Australia that went really, really well, the Americans, uh, I think they had a, a contract with Geffen Records. Right. And through various ways and things that, that they got to position where they had to release them. But they listened to the Australian call stuff and said, this don't work, you know, this is poor recordings, didn't sound great. And so Geffen uh, got in touch with me and asked me to re-record all their hits and uh, to make a new album for America. And I said, that's fine. I don't mind re-recording all this stuff, but I want to do two new songs as well. And they said, fine. And so I did all re-recorded all their stuff. So, you know, um, it's a bit more feel orientated. Same song, sounds sort of the same, but it's got more energy and feel, all their other stuff. And then it came to, I said, okay, we've done all that. Now we've got my two songs, I, I, you know, supposed to do. Now, what new songs have you got? And James Rain looked at me and said, we haven't got any. And I look around the band, Brad Robinson, and that we haven't got. I said, okay, and, and this is this is a double, two sides of this kind, you know, uh, with Reckless. And I said, okay. So the first thing I did, was I said, well, why don't we re what song haven't we done? And why don't we just use that chord pattern and put a different melody on it and put a different name? And that, and that was a song called White Limbo, which came from a song called, we used the structure of a song called Red Guitar. And I said, well, call it White, I don't know, Limbo. I don't get any publishing on this and I've come up with that the whole title and so and they, they got that idea pretty uh, and then I said you know and we just it'll just sound totally different we'll just do a different melody to this da, 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 da. And so we did that and I said well I've got one more song to go and um, and by that stage you know uh, what had happened with Australian crawlers that they uh, they sacked their drummer just before I went to record with them and um, so I got buzz from the angels to come down and play drums on all the tracks but then when I was doing the two songs, Buzz said, oh, look, I, I have to go back. I've got commitments in Sydney. But, and I said, well, can you leave me your Oberheim drum machine? He said, sure. And so as so I used that on, on White Limbo, and then I still had it. And I said, James, you must have another song. He said, look, none of us, we don't have any. And, and you know, so we're, and I was still working on White Limbo and stuff. And, James sort of sidled up to me and, you know, without the others hearing, he said, look, I've got one song, but it's, it's nowhere near ready yet. I haven't written the lyrics and all that sort of stuff. I said, just give me a listen. So he, he snuck me down to another little studio and played me a demo of Reckless. 
He said, you see, it's what it's like. It was just on acoustic guitar. I said, that's great. He said, yeah, but I haven't finished the lyrics. I said, yes, you have. Definitely agree. They, 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 he said, yeah, but it's only stream of consciousness so I can remember the melody. You know, it's the only reason I've written it like that. So I'm going, I was going to do the words later. I said, no, they're great, man. Yeah, those words, meet me down by the fairy landing where the pontoons bump and sway. I said, they're great. You're really good. And so he said, okay. So then I got buzzes. You ask about the snare sound. I got buzzes overheim drum machine, which I flipped open, got into the guts of the thing, and each and it was a analog digital setup, basically. It, it, it sort of had preset sounds in it that, that you could basically program into a sequence. But you opened it up and you get into each of the di different sounds, and there's a little wheel, a little potentiometer on each of the little sound cards that are in there. Behind the hotline, and so I'd hit the snare and go, Pardon? You hotline it. No, it goes top, you know, the snare. And I found this little wheel and I detuned the snare. It went from top, da, da, crack, I put, put it right down until it went just, I said, Great, and put a little sequence together. And that's the snare sound that you're talking about, which was this high behind machine. A totally detuned electronic drum beat uh, snaring that I got to get this big wide sound that I, I quite liked that I sort of fretless fretless bass on there. No, Rosie Westbrook came in and played um, double bass, a double bass and cello. So I said the only thing that's wrong with it, I thought, because I was a big H fan, and I thought the song. It was it's pretty much the same arrangement, except I, I put a solo into it. And I got, um, what's his name? Uh, Simon Binks, the guitar player. I said, forget the electric guitar, let's do it on classical guitar. Because yep. I wanted something different. Uh, you know, just so, point of difference, you know, let's make it so it's interesting. Uh, it can still be melodic, but it can be interesting. And so we did that and, you know, James did sang the, sang the, the thing the same way. I got, you know, but I, I wanted an eight feeling in there. So I got Rosie Westbrook, who's just put an album out, a double bass cello album out now, I think, uh, about two weeks ago. And she was Sean, no, she was the bass player's girlfriend from Australian Court at the time. And so she was great. We used to get on really well. And so she came in and I just got her to play. Uh, I quadruple tracked her just going, dum, 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 on, yeah. a, on a double bass, to, but high off to get a cello sound. But, it's, but, but it was basically, so I put that in there to get that, that sort of sound, but there was no double bass on the electric bass or anything like that. And yeah. so that's how that song came together. And it became their first, Australian Cross first number one. They never had a right. number one. We're going, for, we're going later into the 80s and the reverb is getting even more prominent. Yep. Take me back. Take me back to yeah. you in the yeah. longest time. Oh, whoa, 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 yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's, that song is, um, it was a, a very important song 
uh, in the sense that we, we with, with Noiseworks, I'd done the, I did a single with them called No Lies, which I was incredibly mm -hmm. happy with. I totally rearranged that song, and um, and so I was very happy with it because I knew it was going to work. It's one of those songs that I said before. I'm sitting there working on it, and I had to leave the room and go, yes, 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 and come back in and, and say, yeah, okay, where are we? And, no uh, lies, no lies. Huge hit, huge songs. Yeah, it was great, great song, you know. And I remember hearing that on the radio for the first time. How good is that, you know? And um, but when I was working on it, I knew it was the right song. I had good players, great singer, all that sort of stuff. They had the song. I did nothing uh, except um, change the arrangement and put a bridge, yeah, put a intro with, on it and whatever. Uh, with the arrangement, but the tempo was the same, key was the same. That worked anyway. So then we, they said, "Oh, can we do an album?" And so yeah, we. So we went to Melbourne to, to do an album. You know, we knew we had one hit, and we need another one. And and so the point was to keep the band happy and relaxed. So we spent most of that album learning how to drink a pot of vodka in 17 seconds. Which <laughs> I think that, that was the record, 17 seconds. What, we had everyone, or yeah, well, we just we just start, and we, the, the, the band up that, that's it, what it's gone, and we ha we'd have a, a mini fridge in the, in the control room that was stacked with bottles of vodka, stacked to the top. All the, we took out all the bars and the fridge and just put vodka in there, and then we we get pissed so quickly, and then we um, start playing. We had a very long corridor, so we start playing cricket. In the corridor, you know, we'd, we'd get a, a ping pong ball and wrap it up with gaffer tape till it got really big. Then put a base, cut a base e string up and stick it down so it was like a seam. And put, you know, more gaffer tape over that and put more gaffer tape over the whole thing. These are obviously the days of unlimited studio budgets. Well, these are the days of not caring about studio budgets, and um, yeah. <laughs> and so we would just be playing cricket most of the time, you know. And we, I did it with the model as well. Uh, but it, and we'd be in, in the studio, you know, like the drums are set up over here, amps are set up over here, and we'd fielders everywhere, you know, drunk playing cricket. And after we, and then when everyone was hyper, I'd say, okay, let's pull. You know, so everyone's relaxed, they're, they're warmed up, and we'd go in. And, and one of the songs on that particular one was a song called Take Me Back, which John. And he can correct me if I'm wrong, but we talked about, okay, where do these lyrics and where's the song come from? He said, oh, there was a, and I remember the news story quite well. He said, oh, there was a girl in Queensland that was, had broken down by the side of the road and um, in going to work one, one morning and she had a flat tyre or something and, um, and she was trying to get help with a car. You know, she's at 19 or whatever, 18. And, uh, and, People remember driving past and not stopping and seeing her, and then, and then all of a sudden, she was gone. So someone had obviously stopped to help, didn't help. They just kidnapped her and killed her. And um, and and that song was based around that. Take me back. Like someone wanted. I don't want to be kidnapped. Please let me go. I just want to go back to the people I love, my family. You know, take me back. Wow, that's a real dark twist. Oh, it's very dark. It was yeah. very, and that affected me greatly because it happened in a suburb that I knew really well in Brisbane called Anala, which was always a rough area in those days, and in Brisbane, really rough area. And uh, and so it struck a chord with me as well. 
but you know that doesn't explain the reverb but it explains the passion i had for the song we could keep going through tracks for hours but um one of your great friends um michael gadinsky yep how have you coped since his passing when it happened obviously it was uh, one of the great shocks uh, incredible shock um to me because michael and i are the same age um he was a, a mate um a mentor he saved my life a couple of times uh, not just him but his family um you know sue you know the kids and all that and uh you know, after one particular trying episode in my life, it gave Michael and Sue were just amazing to me. And um, so, but but then, you know, obviously they got me, Michael, at, at a low time, said, mate, just come and work for me, you know, and, and, and I did. And we did a lot of stuff together. We, you know, hung out. I lived at the Gadinsky household, in the Gadinsky house in Lancel Road for over a year. So, yeah, his passing left a huge hole in my life, but I also realized that what it was that when michael died it was as if he was passing the baton on to a new generation on behalf of us all all of us from that era it was as if michael was saying that's enough we've had our go it's time to give the next generation a go that's what it felt like when he died the outpouring of um, shock and grief and from many people had their own reasons to mourn michael as I had mine, and um, but such an influence on me, as I've said before, I, I have two heroes in the music business, that's Ted Albert and Michael Gadinsky. They mm. carved a path through a wall of human flesh for Australian music. And, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they used to put shit on Michael and say, oh, Gadinsky did this, this, does this. I said, do you know Michael Gadinsky? Oh, no, but yeah, I know guys do. And I said, well, you know what Michael does? You know, I'd, give, I'd use this example. I'd say, well, you know Dennis Handlin from Sony, you know, who's been kicked out since, I, I, but I used to say this. Dennis Handlin probably makes $2 million a year. The Americans give him $2 million bucks a year to run Sony in Australia. Yeah. Michael, Michael takes $2 million out of his own pocket and puts it into his record company. He doesn't take money out, he puts it in. Big yeah. difference. Yeah. Big difference. And um, I said, he's done more for this for you than you'll ever know. And so yeah, it, it, it rocked me, rocked me big time, as it did so many people. And um, but that's a you know, like the family and I are still very close. You know, so we still maintain that 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 bond and through Sue and Matt and Kate, etc. What were the qualities, if any, that Ted Alberts and Gadinsky shared in common? Belief. Belief that they could do it. Yeah. Belief that they could get a number one in America. Belief that they could take Australian music to the world. That was the really the the biggest thing they shared in common. Because like Michael was like he's like the biggest kid on the planet, except when it comes to business, he's like that. Um, where Ted was all business the whole time. You know, he was never a kid. He was still came from that old money era which I, you see that in Adelaide, you see it in Melbourne, and sometimes you see it in Sydney, but the, um, the other end of Collins Street, you know, the, 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 if you know what I mean. Yeah. And so the, the, whereas, you know, if you're looking at Collins Street in Melbourne, 
Ted lived in Melbourne, he'd be up at the top end of the Paris end of Collins Street, where yeah. Michael would be down the Flinders, down the Spencer Street end, down the hard end. Yeah. So they were totally two different personalities. You know, Michael Garius, Ted was quiet. You know, Michael was um, loved nothing more than going to gigs and stuff like that, but Ted loved nothing more than becoming world champion in the Dragon Class sailing boats and stuff like that. And, uh, but uh, just totally different people, but they're, they're, in the end, their agenda was just the same. Um, the last thing we do is a regular segment we've created. It's called Rock and Roll Roulette. You basically have get presented with two bands and you have to choose one. There's no other option. And, I mean, starting off with the obvious one, Beatles or Stones. Beatles. I mean, I love Stones. Don't get me wrong. But I saw the Beatles. <laughs> you don't have to call off the ends. You don't I, have do to have, I do have to qualify because I, you know, the people would expect me to say the Stones, but I have to say the Beatles because the Beatles changed my life. Yeah. They changed, you know, when that was the first, you know, I'd seen, I was into music before that. But when the, the Beatles came along, I could not believe that I was in the, they were in the same country that I was in when they came to Australia. I could not believe they were in the same town. Cultural impact. And, we, and when my brother came around the park while I was practising football and said, you've got to come home, you've got to see the Beatles. No, I, I totally get that. I mean, people often, there's so many arguments online about but LeBron or Michael Jordan. And, and it's, how can you compare two of the, you know, most well, no, the, you gifted can. athletes, but the cult for me, it's the cultural impact of one it's of them. It's exactly right, and and the Beatles had the biggest cultural impact. Yeah, if the, if the Beatles hadn't been successful, you would never have heard of the Rolling Stones. No, you're exactly right. All right, uh, Bob Dylan or Elvis? Oh, easy. I'll say that Bob Dylan is a real Elvis Presley of America. I've said that forever. Love that. Love that. He is. He is. I mean, he's the greatest, you know, like one of the greatest poets. I was into Bob Dylan when I was 12, you know, in 1965 or 64. You know, it's one of the first things after the Beatles that I got into. And that's through a school friend who turned me on to Bob Dylan when I yep. was first year of high school. But easy, 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 easy. Bob Dylan, I worked with Bob Dylan. I never worked with Elvis. But, you know, it's, it's <laughs> just lay down the air, you know, <laughs> Bob Dylan. Angels or cold chisel? Cultures. Ben, Vander or Young? <laughs> that's pretty. That's a silly question. Is that is that a real question? Well, I, I I I ask a lot of silly questions in this podcast, and I usually cut them out. So I'm going to leave this one in. Go for it. Okay, okay Ben. Um, that's a, it's an interesting question. Very hard to split because it's like having salt and pepper. You need them both. You know and. Um, you got it's like Andrew Ferris and Michael Hutchins. You know they both bring different things to the party, but but equally as strong. Uh, Vander and Young, George was the heart of Vander and Young. Harry was the soul of Vander and Young. So I have to say that's a draw. We didn't touch on um, in excess at all. But what's what's a brief story you can tell us about your time? Maybe maybe that surrounds the live at Wembley or something that sticks out in your mind with your experience with NXS? Well, there's so much that sticks out in my mind about NXS. Um, obviously, from the very first track I did with them, which was called um, The One Thing, and the, the entire Shibushi Bar album, and the reason The One Thing was done, they asked me to do it so I could 
they could have a single and also a track to take to America and England to look for a really good producer to do their album. And they took the one thing to America, all the producers they talked to, the big time guys, you know, Clear Mountain, whatever, they all said, who produced this? That's a guy you should be working with. So they came back after a very expensive trip around the world and said, oh, Mark, uh, uh, can you do the rest of the album? <laughs> you know, so that's that. But but about Wembley, you, you bring up a, a great thing there. That's, uh, I, I've seen In Excess play a thousand times. I've never seen them play better than Wembley Stadium. That was just one show. Can you imagine to pull that show off of, with that ability, if you've ever seen Live Baby Live, um, particularly the original version we did, not the remix version, it's got no balls in it. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Were you working so, that day? What do you mean was I working that day? Well, were you, were you, work, you were working on the show, weren't you? I produced the show, yeah. yeah um, right. I, I, did, I had two recording trucks there. I was mixing live for the BBC and I had the Manor Mobile uh, recording the whole show. And then I went to Air Studios two days on the weekend and, and mixed the whole show over a weekend. Just by, No band, just me freaking out. What am I going to do? Did it sound great. And then... And I had, and the, the funny thing was that when I mixed the whole show, because uh, I was doing a video, but they shot it on film, the only vision they could give me was Michael's solo camera. And, they, and they, you've got to remember, they had like 17 cameras on this thing, you know. Mm. But I got Michael's solo reel of just the camera following him wherever he went. So I didn't see anything of the show except Michael. You know, I did on the day, I, I slipped out and had a quick look at a couple of things on the side stage. But um, what well, was happening, but while I was mixing it, I was at Air Studios in Oxford Circus in London mixing, and um, just me and the assistant. And the assistant was no help at all. He was up the back doing fuck all. And so I, had, I mixed this show, and I mixed it based around the uh, kick drum and Michael's vocal, because all I could see was Michael. And so I had Michael up there, brought the kick drum in, brought everything around, invented a, um, a reverb for the crowd, to give it, you know, that liveish sound. Crowd verb. Crowd verb. I've got this crowd verb happening because I and and all my delays. You know, I thought, well, you, I, I used delays, but I wanted to make it sound like reflections of the stadium. So you didn't change the delay for every song. Um, and and that show was insane. And one story I can tell about that was that in the dressing room before the band went on. Um, it was a massive dressing room huge, you know, you know, like the size of a big studio. I mean, really big studios. And then we had everyone in there, you know, like um, it's full of guests, you know, you can imagine Kylie, Helena, a couple of the Stones, uh, other bands, all these people, you know, because In Excess was so huge at the time. And so everyone was there. And then Chris Murphy got up and said, everyone out, two of personnel only that are needed can stay in. So everyone left. And there was just the band, tour manager, head of security, and the manager, Chris Murphy, and myself. And so I said, oh, okay, great. And, you know, getting ready. And I'd be doing my little football coach talk to the individuals in the band, you know, going around talking to them about this and that, because I'd been on tour with them for a year at this time, throughout America, throughout Europe. And um, as the musical advisor of the show about what was working, what was not. And I remember, you know, like talking to everyone and I've just finished talking to someone. I'm, I'm going over to see one of the wardrobe girl or something and Michael wanders up and he's got a Walkman on and, he, and then Michael comes over. You know how Michael walks? Like, sort of thing. 
just want, you know, strolls over and said, man, you've got to listen to this. And I said, what is this? this new band, album comes out next Thursday or whatever. Have a listen. And he put the headphones on and he played me Massive Attack, which, whoa, you know, I go, holy shit. You know, and I, instantly Massive Attack became my favourite band for about two years, listening to it. And he said, cool, huh? cool, yeah. I said, it's great. He said, open your hand. You know, it's just me and Michael. And so I opened my hand like that and he put an ecstasy pill in, right, in my hand. And he, and he said, close my hand up like that. And he puts there and he closes over the ear and then he says, pats it and says, the stairs, during the stairs, that's when we're all taking it. And so at the start of the stairs, which is the fifth song into the set, I'm sitting in the BBC truck, you know, drop my ecstasy pill, you know, fifth song. Had you heard of ecstasy at that time? Of course I've heard of ecstasy at that time. I was pretty, it would have been early, the heyday of, that was it when ecstasy was ecstasy. Absolutely it was. It was this, yeah. this is in 1991, you know, and it was huge. I mean, it's a, it, come on, you know, it, it, it's it, the party scene in England out of Birmingham, what was that famous Summer club? Summer Manchester. What? Man, the Summer of Love, Manchester. The club. At the end of, yeah, at the end. Yeah. At the end. I mean, you know, everyone knew about all that stuff, you know. It so was you're, is this, is this new, are you breaking it here on our Hoo-Ha podcast that no, uh, in excess played no. Wembley on pingers? Oh, yeah, they're on pingers. Uh, and not and maybe not everyone in the band, <laughs> but, but, but I'm pretty sure, that, yeah, obviously, Michael was. Um, no, they uh, all were. They all were, surely. Uh, pretty Anything. much, uh, uh, Andrew probably wasn't, but but most I'd say yeah, half the band was. And they didn't sure. split them. They didn't split them because they never tore them apart. Ah, very funny. <laughs> you must come up to the palace sometime. I'm a very charismatic guy. You are, Benny. I've always said that about you. I don't care what Alex says about you. I've always liked you. I guess the other question is, where was the kick on? But but hang on. But the thing was, they played their best show ever and they were fucked up out of their heads on ecstasy. And I was too. And I'm thinking, how good is this? And I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking, well, the ecstasy's doing it. But no, when I listened to it all back and we looked at the footage, I did not one overdub on that thing. I did, actually. Gary's Did you notice on. anything when you were mixing it? Could you notice any shift in the groove as the... I could when I, I when I watched the once the, the video had been put David Mallet put the video together after I finished mixing it I had to mix it so he could put do the editing and I remember I only had Michael's solo camera and uh, I remember looking at it at the show later on and during the stairs to see who was chewing yeah and Kirk's eating something and you know and Michael was you know, turned his back and turned around again. And, Digging him, he had this black raincoat which he tore off and went past his mouth and all this sort of stuff. So you could see, you know, but the, but it just, the show just got was brilliant from the beginning, from the intro when John accidentally opened the show with a drum field. If you watch it, it's worth watching because that was nothing was planned, nothing was planned. That opening was not planned, and um, that's that's a band that's played together for many 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 years.
John just starts playing drums and everyone downs on stage and gets into the And then John goes, one, two, three, four, dun, 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 drums in the sky. Dun, dun. It's just brilliant, just brilliant. And again, that had never happened. The whole set list on Wendy's show had never happened. That set list had never been played. And the, the, the only bummer about the Wembley show is that, you know, traditionally every In Excess show ends with Don't Change. They didn't do Don't Change at Wembley. They didn't play it. Didn't play it. What the fuck? And, and everyone, we all kicked ourselves later on, you know, it, it, you know and I was very upset because obviously I produced Don't Change and stuff like that. It was a key song for me. But... Um, but no, they was decided, you know, let's not just do the normal show. We need to have an edge. We need to give ourselves something edgy. So we'll do different sequence of songs, all, you know, mostly the same songs. But classic, classic band decision. Oh, we're playing our biggest show. It's going to be recorded for posterity and be a lifelong document of how amazing we are. Yeah, let's not play our best song. Yeah, well, it's but you know, at that stage, Kick and X, you know, this is um, after the X album, which is after Kick, and so... They, they, they have to play, you know, X amount of song, songs from X. Yeah. They wouldn't normally play, but um, there was a whole bunch of songs that they normally didn't play that got played that turned out really well. The only one I didn't like was, um, what was it called? Um, oh, we used one song for the tape change in the middle of the set. We put a song in there that didn't really matter. I'm just trying to think of what it was. Mm. Uh, and that allowed me, because I had hour-long tape, uh, digital tape reels on the 48-track Sony's that I was using. And uh, and that allowed me to change reels during this one song that we sort of didn't really care much about. I'm just trying to think what it's called, SoftX. So if, but, if people go and listen to the Watch Wembley on YouTube or whatever, that's, is that still your mix that you're hearing on there? Uh, I don't know. I mean, they did a... They, they, Giles Martin did a, a remastering mix on it, which... Uh, you know, maybe I'm just being selfish, but I, I, it didn't, doesn't seem to have the balls and the oomph and the, and the, the feel of the crowd as much as the one. No that makes no uh, It's impossible. And, and another one, another guy did a, a, that was the Atmos mix, and another guy earlier had done the, um, the, the, the 5.1 mix, which just sounded terrible, to the point where I just said, look. You've got to, you know, if you're going to do that 5.1 mix, you've got to give people the option to use my stereo mix if they want to listen to a stereo mix. Uh, and you can have that, guys. Otherwise, it just, if you don't put a separate stereo mix on there, it, the 5.1 just collapses down into a very poor stereo. But, um, yeah, that's, that, it, it looks, you know, to any in excess person, you know, any music fan who wants to know what in excess sounds like, Go watch live, baby, live. You know, you can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it. You know, you'll hear my mixes are on some. You know, some of the others are on others. You know, uh, YouTube clips because it's the whole. You know, they're all all the clips are on there, but they're not for copyright reasons. Obviously, all in, in one one package. You know, what I mean? great show, great album, love band, and good friends to this day. All right, as always, Mark, you've been incredibly generous with your time, and it's a privilege well, but it's look able you know, to talk to you and hear all this and you as we don't need to say again how much of a icon you are for australia and world music well um, uh, you know look i don't look at myself like that I, i'm someone that's put one foot in front of the other and tried to move forward and lived on fear 
of, of failure, pretty much. And so it's that's and you know lived on my one footprint as I said, and lived on my gut feel and my heart and my um, you know the way I grew up in music like was brilliant. I mean, and and, and to you guys, uh, Ben and Alex, you know, thank you for entrusting me with your first two albums. I you know like you know. I think that the first Bad Dreams album is one of the best projects I've done. You know, there's so many classics on there, so many great songs, you know. I, I still want to do something with Sacred Ground. I would love to do something with that song. It's just, it's, it's a, a masterpiece that's waiting to be finished, I think, that song, um, in various ways. And we've talked about this before, I know. And, you know, everything that we did, Captain Collard and Dumb Ideas, you name it, you know. Gutful, great album, a lot of energy going into that and, and very much like those because we, we captured something there. You know, we really did. It's a really good feel. Awesome. Uh, when I first walked well, into the studio that, that first day, I walked up to you, Mark, and you were listening to Massive Attack and you put a pinger in my hand and you closed my hand and you said, fifth song. <laughs> Was that Naden? Was that the fifth song? I can't remember. Yeah, Naden. That's <laughs> So we all took pingers to Naden. No, we didn't. We, we didn't take drugs at all on your project. So I would never. We've involved, yeah. Well, Frank popped around a fair few times. I would have. Yeah, well, I was smoking pot for sure. <laughs> um, but that's just the way it is. I'm that, sorry. That comes out of the ground. It's not. I mean, you've been smoking weed this whole podcast. Uh, it, well, not. No, that's actually a cigarette. Believe it or not. Um, but no, it's it's a pot just to finish up, you know. It's, um, I've been doing pot for my whole life, you know, and, and thank God medical science has proved me right. You know, aloe vera, marijuana, best two plants ever. Fuck that. We're going out with Don't Change. Peace.